Well, we now have the privilege again of hearing from the Lord God as we turn in His Word to our scripture lesson for this morning's sermon, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 23. So this is the Word of the Lord as He inspired the Apostle Paul to write. And so we know that we have an infallible an inerrant word of God, for it was inspired by him, and he makes no errors. 1 Corinthians three eighteen through 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading, its exposition, and its hearing. Well, last Lord's Day we read Paul's words in verse 17, where he said, If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now, this came in the broader context of Paul's arguments against the situation in Corinth where the church is divided into various factions. You'll recall that the Christians in Corinth have been saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, that is Peter. And others saying, I am of Christ, which is as we see here, technically correct, but apparently was helping to to cause the division. Paul has been exposing the folly of this kind of unnecessary division in the church. And he warns that this kind of corruption defiles the temple of God, which the church is, he says. Now today's reading then culminates uh, in this statement in verse 23, and you are Christ's, And Christ is God. Now, lest someone can't hear the apostrophe there, uh, we're not teaching, and Paul is not teaching that New Age idea that each one of you is a Christ. No, that's not. We're saying that there's an apostrophe S there. So it's literally, if we read the, the Greek, you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. And that of there indicates Uh, the use of what's called the genitive case. Uh, Just a quick grammar lesson for you. Uh, The genitive case is basically what we would call the possessive case in English. Uh, We indicate it most often with the preposition of or with an apostrophe S, or if it's plural, an S apostrophe uh, in, uh, in the English language. The genitive case indicates possession. It indicates belonging Paul is saying, in essence, you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. 
working backward from that statement, we see that because of the reality that Christians belong to Christ, several things are true. Number one, all things are yours if you are in Christ. And we'll explain what that means and what it doesn't mean in a bit here. Number two, boasting in merely human things is foolish. And three, it is better to seem foolish to the world than to be wise as the world counts such things, as the world judges those things, and thus actually be truly foolish in terms of the things of God. At the end, I'll share several applications that we can discern from these teachings. So let's start with Paul's statement in verse 23. Paul is speaking, of course, to Christians, uh, those whom he has said already in this letter are called of God, are being saved, who are spiritual, who are in Christ, who have faith, and who, as he just said a few verses ago, are the temple of God. To these people, he says, you are Christ's, you are of Christ, and Christ is God's. So while saying you are Christ's and Christ is God's is a valid translation, I think it actually would be more helpful in our modern translations, uh, to translate this as, you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Because that's very uh, poignant and purposeful in light of what we saw back in chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul said this, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. And Paul is saying here, you are of Christ. It's not as if some Christians are of Christ while others are of Paul or of Apollos or of Peter or some other teacher in the church. Either you are of Christ or you are not saved. And you can't be of Paul or of Apollos or anyone else in Christ if you are not also in Christ. So in that case, none of these Other things that we're going to talk about today apply to you if you are not of Christ. And Paul wants to emphasize this. You have to be of Christ. That's the the important thing here. To get more deeply into what Paul means, you'll notice that he likens this way the believer is of Christ to the way Christ is of God. So how is Christ of God? Well, there are a few different ways we can look at it. In John 10 verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And he's speaking there of the way in which, in terms of his divine nature, his nature is God. He and the Father are one in essence, though distinct in personhood. I and the Father, I and thou, right? I and you, two distinct persons and yet one. Just as John tells us in the opening words of the book, when he says, The Word was both God and with God at the same time. The person called the Word, and also the Son, is one and the same God as the Father and the Holy Spirit, but is not the same person as the Father and the Holy Spirit. He can therefore be with God and be God at the same time. John also tells us in verse 14 of John 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he took on human nature. And so continues as both God and man forever. One person with two natures. 
The two natures are distinct but always present in the same person. So Christ is of God in his nature as God because he is one with the Godhead. But also we can say he is of God in his human nature because he's the only begotten son of God. He's been sent by God. He's called the apostle of God. He was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the Holy Spirit taking on a true human nature to fulfill God's plan of redemption for his people. So all of those things are ways in which we can say he is of God. Now, you and I are, are not God. When, whatever the New Agers might say to us, uh, we are not God. Whatever Gnostics said, you don't have a little piece of God in you except that Christ would dwell in you spiritually, but your soul is not a little piece of God, not a spark of the divine. So we aren't of Christ in that sense. We don't share his divine nature. But we believers are of Christ in that we, first and foremost, belong to him. Like Christ belongs to God. By virtue of all the things that we've said about Jesus, he belongs to God. Believers in Christ belong to him. He owns us, of course. But also we have a union with him that is similar. It's not identical, but it's similar to that everlasting link which exists between his human nature and his divine nature. Or similar to the way in which he is one with God the Father. And of course, by taking on human nature, he has become, in a sense, one with all who have a redeemed nature in him. We've seen before that we are in him. There is a true spiritual union that Christians have with Jesus. Now, if you belong to Christ, and Christ similarly belongs to God, then by extension, you belong to God. And so it's, of course, appropriate to call Christ's people God's people then. And now, how many things then belong to God? All but a few, right? No, all things. All things belong to God. How much of that has he entrusted to the reign of Christ? All of it. Jesus didn't say, some authority has been granted me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18, he says, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. And there he's talking about in his human nature as the one who has fulfilled God's mission for him. As God, Jesus always possessed all authority. But as a man, since he also has that human nature, when he had accomplished his mission, in perfect obedience, all authority was given to him. You can't give anything to God, it already belongs to him, right? But God gave to Christ in his human nature this authority. He has all authority under God as a man. He's what Adam should have been. What Adam was originally until he fell. And so Daniel 7, 13, 14 predicts, as Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. Then to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages, not some, right? All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Of all kingdoms, his is the one that will not be destroyed. It will not cease to exist. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him, talking about Jesus, and given him 
the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Also we see in Ephesians 1.22, And he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church. That's really important to our understanding of what we call the mediatorial kingship of Christ as well. That not only is Christ given all the authority over all things, but then as the one with authority over all things, he's given as a gift to the church. Now, if all things belong to God, and God has entrusted all things to Christ, and Christ has been given as the head over all things to the church, how many things belong to the church? All things. Now, we need to note the authority rests in Christ, not in us. We, of ourselves, can claim nothing whatsoever. You don't have the authority to name and claim things or speak things into existence. That's an authority that belongs to God alone. Nor is it your right to confiscate possessions. We were talking a little bit in Sabbath school today about uh, some who uh, thought during the, the Reformation era, some radicals who thought that was the case, that you can just go out and confiscate other people's possessions. All things belong to Christ and uh, belong to his church through him. Well, no, if Christ in his common grace has given something to someone else, it's not yours to take. But if we are all of Christ then through him, in a sense, all things belong to us. And Paul's saying that not so that we will be greedy, but so that we won't be, so that we won't be arrogant, so that we will be humble and humbled by that. Well, number one then, or a point that follows from that, is that because Christians belong to Christ, all things are yours if you are truly in Christ. Verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. We'll deal more with the problem of factions shortly that he's addressing there by talking about Paul and Apollos and Cephas. Uh, But notice the fact that all things are yours if you're in Christ. That means it cannot be true that some of us would be of Paul but not of Apollos. And some of us of Apollos, but not of Paul, or some of us of Peter, or any other human teacher and not another. All true believers are of Christ. And so we don't belong to Paul, we don't belong to Apollos, we don't belong to Peter, except in the sense that they belong to Jesus, and so do we, and so we all belong to each other. But look at the other things that Paul mentions in verse 22. The world... Life, death, things present, things to come. Is Paul telling us this so that we should say, okay, well, all things belong to us, so the church can just go out and confiscate everything, or we should have sort of a socialism where not the state, but the church owns everything? No, that's not what he's teaching. Bible scholar Gordon Fee noted that these are five things, he says, that, quote, are the ultimate tyrannies of human existence to which people are in lifelong bondage as slaves. And what Paul is saying is you're free from these things. They don't own you, you own them. 
Because Christ does. Think about that. For the unsaved, for the fallen man or woman, what do they fear? What do they serve? They fear or serve the world. They want to be liked by the world. We have to watch out for this tendency among ourselves, don't we? That we would be more interested in being liked, being esteemed by the world, than in being faithful to Christ. They want to be liked. They want to be esteemed. They want fame. They want money. They want power. Because they think that gives them some control over their existence. They desire long life, which is not a bad desire. We weren't made originally to be mortal. But the pursuit of fallen mankind has ever included a great focus on extending life, even trying to overcome death, without actually having to reconcile with the Lord of life and death. The only one who could give them everlasting life. They'll even fear and serve death itself then. If they can't overcome it, they worship it. They serve it in the cult of death. Abort as many babies as possible. I think it's been rightly observed that in terms of modern leftist politics, abortion has become their sacrament. Their leftism is their religion and abortion is their sacrament. It's not about, as is often falsely claimed, uh, that it would be safe, legal, and rare. Start as many wars. Murder as many people who get in the way of your false religion or your ideology as possible. You know, it's provable that in terms of the most deadly ideologies in the world before the 20th century, you could say maybe Islam killed an awful lot of people for not being Muslims. But in less than a century, socialism far exceeded any other ideology in terms of how many people it murdered who got in its way. Or just kill out of frustration or for fame, as we see happen so often with people committing mass shootings and that kind of thing. There's a cult of death. Mankind fears and serves death. Claim that they're eliminating developmental or mental disorders, but they're really just killing off people who have those problems and those challenges. You know, the Nazis did this. In the modern Netherlands, doctors have been encouraged to euthanize, so-called euthanize, put mercy kill disabled babies when they're born. In Iceland, they claim to have eliminated Down syndrome, but you know what they've actually done? They've just aborted every baby who had Down syndrome. And I could go on and on. There was a cult of death. People live their lives enslaved to the present, obsessed with instant gratification. This can be a danger, again, for all of us. Or they constantly fear their current circumstances. Or they fear tomorrow's circumstances, things to come. But in Christ, all these things are yours. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Simon J. Kistemacher, I have a little more, a few more quotes from, from uh, commentators today than often, but here's a quote from Simon J. Kistemacher. who says, In what respect does a believer possess the categories Paul has enumerated? The word 
world should be understood in relation to Jesus Christ who made the world, redeemed it, upholds it, and appoints his people to be his stewards in it. Indeed, this world redeemed by Christ is the Christian's workshop. And in that workshop, he glorifies his Lord for he knows that through Christ, the world belongs to him. The next two words, life and death, also refer to Jesus Christ. He is both the giver of life and the conqueror of death. So what do we have to fear from those things, right? The life of Christ is given to believers by the gospel and by the Holy Spirit who delivers them from death. Paul eloquently writes about the defeat of death. A typical passage from one of Paul's epistles illustrates the death Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. That's Romans 6, 10, and 11. Kistemacher goes on, he says, In last Christians possess the present in which God rules. Nothing happens by chance, but rather all things, health, sickness, joy, woe, come from his hand. In respect to the future, Christians place their trust and confidence in Jesus Christ, for nothing can separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You, Christian, belong to God. You belong to Christ. Therefore, all things are yours. Number two, You belong to Christ, therefore boasting in merely human things is foolish. In verse 21 and into verse 22, Therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. There's a problem in this context, as Paul was writing to the church of Corinth. They were boasting in men. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. At the end of chapter 1, the apostle taught, but of him, of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. If you are of Christ, Paul asks, why be so concerned about what servant of Christ you are, quote-unquote, of They are all of you, and you are all of them, because we are all of Christ. So how foolish is it to boast in men? John Calvin writes, as therefore he, Christ, he alone is endowed with authority to rule us by his word, Paul says that others are ours, meaning that they are appointed to us by God with a view of our making use of them, not that they should exercise dominion over our consciences, Thus, on the one hand, he shows that they are not useless, and on the other hand, he keeps them in their own place, that they may not exalt themselves in opposition to Christ. Or we might say that we might not exalt them into a position in opposition to Christ. That last part is key. Human teachers should not be exalted to a position that is in opposition to Christ. We must not consider ourselves of even an apostle, lest we diminish the glory that rightfully belongs to Christ alone. So we must not boast in mere men, but only in Christ. Let him who glories, glory in the Lord. Boasting in merely human things is foolish. Number three, you, Christian, belong to Christ. Therefore, It is better to be thought foolish by the world than to be considered wise by the world if that means that you're rejecting the things of God. 
And the world will always steer in that direction of calling you wise if you're rejecting the things of God. The fallen world will do that. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So notice again, wisdom is is important, but it has to be the right wisdom. It has to be truly godly wisdom. It's better to become a fool in the world's eyes so that you can actually be wise in God's eyes. Believing the gospel and the whole counsel of his word. Puritan Matthew Henry writes, Do not be led away from the truth and simplicity of the gospel by pretenders to science and eloquence. Oh, how that was true in his day and how much more in ours. The pretenders to science and eloquence would try to lead you away from the gospel. And it's important to note they're pretenders to wisdom and eloquence, to science and eloquence. Do not be led away from the truth and simplicity of the gospel by pretenders to science and eloquence, by a show of deep learning or a flourish of words by rabbis, orators, or philosophers. Note we are in great danger of deceiving ourselves when we have too high an opinion of human wisdom and arts. Plain and pure Christianity will be likely to be despised by those who can suit their doctrines to the corrupt taste of their hearers and set them off with fine language or support them with a show of deep and strong reasoning. We've noted before, there is a place for deep and strong reasoning in the church, but we have to be very careful not to have the wool pulled over our eyes by people who seem very learned but who are actually steering us away from the truth of Scripture. As Henry goes on, he says, But he who seems to be wise must become a fool that he may be wise. He must be sensible of his own ignorance and lament it. He must distrust his own understanding and not lean on it. To have a high opinion of our wisdom is but to flatter ourselves, and self-flattery is the very next step to self-deceit. The way to true wisdom is, is to sink our opinion of our own to a due level and be willing to be taught of God. He must become a fool who would be truly and thoroughly wise. The person who resigns his own understanding that he may follow the instruction of God is in the way to true and everlasting wisdom. Paul explains in verse 19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness, That's a quote from Job 5.13. The so-called wise of this world are exposed as foolish by God. For because of the world's rejection of God for who he truly is, true wisdom from God is rejected and ridiculed. Thus Paul says in Romans 1.22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. God is going to expose that foolishness for what it actually is. Having gone to a liberal seminary, I can tell you firsthand of the ways in which professing Christians can be so self-deceived. They become more interested in appearing wise in the world's eyes and are unwilling to appear foolish through faithfulness to God and His Word. And so, the academic standards of many of these formerly Christian institutions become the world's academic standards instead of 
faithfulness to scriptures or to any kind of confessional standard. And so they'll do intellectual gymnastics to justify their own rejection of God's word. Their arguments seem wise to a foolish world. As Paul says in verse 20, And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Psalm 94, 11. The thoughts of the wise, as mankind counts what's wise, are futile. They're but a vapor in God's judgment. If the so-called wisdom of this world is futile, then it's better to be thought foolish by the world, by the supposedly wise of this world, than to reject actual wisdom from God. We've seen before that God chose what the world considers to be foolish in order to glorify himself by exposing just how unwise human wisdom really is. If you have saving faith in Christ, you belong to Christ. You are of Christ. And therefore, all things are yours. Not in the sense of the absolute authority that God alone possesses, but in the sense that you belong to everyone else who belongs to Christ and they belong to you. This excludes all factionalizing the church over petty differences. Now, there are uh, legitimate reasons why Christians uh, are divided over particular issues, because we're, if, if all of us are trying to be faithful to the Word of God, there are some who just go off into wacky and liberal directions, like I mentioned earlier. But this kind of thing certainly excludes all factionalizing the church over petty differences, over who our favorite teachers might be, that kind of thing. But also you have nothing to fear because you belong to Christ and therefore all things belong to you. You have nothing to fear from the world, from life, from death, from the present or from the future. This therefore teaches us to put aside our anxieties. Moreover, all boasting in human things is foolish. All things belong to Christ and through him all things belong to the church. So why boast in anything less than Christ himself. Whatever greatness the church possesses, it's not because we are connected to servants of Christ, however powerfully Christ might have used them. And we can acknowledge how Christ has powerfully used great teachers in the church. It's wonderful to be connected to apostles, to Augustine of Hippo, to Martin Luther, to John Calvin, to the Covenanters, and so on. We celebrate them. We thank God for them. Many of us name our children after them. That's fine. It's great, in fact. But they belong to us as we belong to them. It's not that we should divide over them. We should all be seeking Christ and clinging to Him. We all belong to Christ. Their greatness came from Christ and it is Him alone in Him alone that we should boast. Lastly, do not be concerned with seeming wise in the world's eyes. Most unbelievers will think you are utterly foolish, no matter how high your IQ might be. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about that. 
Be willing to be thought foolish so that you might possess true wisdom. Don't be self-deceived into focusing on human wisdom. Be far more concerned with learning godly wisdom, whatever the wise of this world might think. Let's pray. All wise God, we thank you that we have the privilege of belonging to Christ. Help us not to fear for all things are ours through him. Let us not boast in merely human things, but teach us to glory in Christ and even to be willing to be counted fools for his sake, that we might be truly wise in your eyes. For we pray in the name of Jesus, who is wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Amen.